Hi, I'm Gary Knoll. My guest now is Dr. Robert Malone. Dr. Malone has an unusual and exemplary background. He is a mainstream medical doctor, board certified in his field. He is also a scientist. In fact, he has a rather storied scientific background as he was one of the original researchers doing the investigation into the RNA vaccines or the science of it, which later was used in no small measure to create the RNA vaccines that we see today. He has published. Uh, he has been a consultant to Big Pharma. Uh, he has also been a teacher. Uh, he has seen patients. So he covers the full spectrum. And all that was challenged once he decided to look a little deeper into the question of were the protocols that we were using supposedly to protect people and save their lives, was it really working? Was it based upon the type of science that he and so many other scientists believe should be followed, not tainted or influenced by politics, ideology, a financial interest, uh, but rather what does the science show? That said, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mullen, for being with us today. With right now, people are totally confused. The same messages, same identical messages about getting the vaccines, um, self-quarantine if you're infected, if you show you're positive to the PCR test, nothing has changed. And people are abiding by it, but not in the same percentage. But you still have your personalities, you still have the government, the CDC, the FDA, World Health Organization suggesting that the vaccine is what will protect you, that it will prevent you from getting the virus or spreading the virus. And it really lessens your likelihood of hospitalization or death. And since they have not yet, the government in three years has not yet decided to show that we are not all equally susceptible uh, to not just the infection, but the consequences of an infection, where the people who are most affected we're not paying attention to and not helping them with their underlying conditions like obesity, um, any form of cardiovascular condition, uh, emphysema, dementia, diabetes, etc. And generally over the age of 60, but we're treating as if one size fits all. We are all equally uh, culpable and the science doesn't show that. So if you're a person today saying, I don't know if I should get vaccinated, but I may have to uh, because of my job, and what should I know? What should I not know? Could you begin there to address some of the questions that people are asking today? Uh, thanks, Gary, for the opportunity to be here. So if I'm understanding you, you're asking me to opine on the current state of the data having to do with the safety and effectiveness of these uh, um, products which are available here in the United States that are uh, marketed as vaccines. Uh, largely marketed by the U.S. government because most of these products are emergency use authorized and so they're not technically allowed to be marketed by the likes of Pfizer or Moderna. Um, so it's a great situation just to, to put a pin on that. Uh, it's a perfect uh, situation for a pharmaceutical company. Um, they uh, have been absolved of all liability uh, they have a single purchaser, which is the U.S. government, that's paying them a premium. 
And that purchaser is doing all of the marketing in the form of the propaganda and social media campaigns, etc., that uh, previously have been budgeted at, at over $10 billion and uh, currently have been budgeted for the uh, boosters at about $475 million. So that's, that's the situation um, uh, in terms of the uh, financial underpinnings here and the liability underpinnings. As I've said repeatedly, if, if you have damage from these products or your children are damaged in some way by taking these products, you will largely find yourself alone in terms of uh, the burden of, of treating or mitigating that damage financially and otherwise because of the uh, uh, liability protection that's been conferred. There is a uh, court that um, is, uh, cannot be appealed that uh, will investigate vaccine claims and uh, for damages. And uh, there have been very, very few uh, awards and those that have been awarded have been quite modest in the current context. In terms of what does the today's data show, and uh, I say that underscoring today's, uh, the, the, the debate uh, terrain landscape uh, regarding the safety and effectiveness of these products is um, complex. Uh, it has a significant uh, bias and conflict of interest, um, which has uh, contaminated much of the information. And uh, even according to the New York Times, the Centers for Disease Control and Protection Prevention um, down in Atlanta, CDC, has uh, become politicized, according to the New York Times, and according to its own internal reports, uh, and has been withholding inf key information about, as you point out, both the risks of the uh, disease, uh, the virus, and the uh, medical products. Uh, so uh, Americans and really and Canadians and, and people from all over the world have faced a very challenging situation in trying to obtain informed consent, which as you know, Gary, is essential uh, in, in any medical procedure or product uh, in terms of fundamental underlying bioethics. Uh, you know, consensus in the Western world uh, from Nuremberg and, and um, forward from that time. Uh, informed consent is crucial, and yet um, people cannot obtain informed consent. They cannot participate in informed consent because availability of true uh, information about risks and potential benefits of these products is not available. Uh, and notoriously, the package inserts for many of these are blank. Uh, they have no information. So what is the truth in a, in a, uh, you know, what's really a highly politicized, uh, um, environment where, uh, the public in the Western world has been subjected to the most massive coordinated propaganda and psychological operations campaign really in modern history. Uh, and I'm, I speak of the Western world to exclude China and the former Soviet Union. 
how's a person to make a decision about whether they accept a product, um, they go along with whatever uh, mandates or other enticements or coercion they may be subjected to through their workplace or otherwise. And, and how do they make decisions about their children in, in a landscape in which uh, access to unbiased data is extremely difficult to obtain? All I can say on this, uh, you, one, one faces the challenge of triangulating truth uh, through multiple sources, and often uh, one has to go offshore to get um, less biased data than what's available in the United States. Uh, and to kind of almost obsessively track uh, the release of information about risks and benefits and the stratified risk of the uh, virus itself, uh, because the risk of Omicron is not the same as the risk of Wuhan, and it's not the same as the risk of Delta. And so all of those older risk benefit data are, are contaminated by that truth. Um, Gary, you, I completely concur that uh, the risk of the virus is age stratified, and it's also stratified by um, high risk groups. And um, to underscore this, uh, well over a year ago, I had a teleconference with Nancy Pelosi um, before the election. Uh, I'm talking about the presidential election, uh, in which I really, really lobbied uh, that we should uh, receive information about both vaccine risks and uh, risks of the virus um, stratified by age. But no action was taken. As you point out, uh, we continue to be um, uh, um, subjected to information uh, um, regarding this situation that, that fails to account for uh, uh, age stratified uh, risks of both virus and vaccine. I'm understanding there's a publication that's just come out today that demonstrates that the um, risk of uh, damage from the virus, which we know has been overstated because of these perverse incentives uh, to hospitals and medical providers uh, where they're given basically financial subsidies for any uh, medical disease, hospitalized disease, or death that is PCR positive. Um, so as I said on Rogan almost exactly a year ago, um, we have this perverse incentive situation where, um, just as a hypothetical, uh, having been trained in Chicago, I'm very sensitive to gunshot wounds, uh, where an individual uh, might have uh, received a gunshot and come to the hospital and pass away, but they're PCR positive. And uh, they would be listed as a COVID death. So the data on the uh, morbidity and mortality in the United States is, is really contaminated by these perverse financial incentives. But there's a recent paper out showing that, that the true uh, risk to adults and children of a disease and death from SARS-CoV-2 um, uh, with the Omicron is actually quite low, much, much lower than has been previously reported.
and of course much, much lower than the notorious uh, um, projections uh, from the Imperial College in London uh, that um, you were used to justify a lot of these uh, public policies. What the data currently show is that uh, um, the risk, and this is very fluid right now, these are data just out of Germany, um, the risk of death from the vaccine conservatively is something in the range of 10 per million doses. So if an individual receives three doses, you know, the primary series plus a booster, just hypothetically, they have a risk. I'm sorry, did I say 10? It's 20, 20 per million. So uh, three doses that accumulates to 60 per uh, million individuals that take a three dose series. And it's been claimed that the risk of the virus uh, mortality is something like uh, 90 uh, per million uh, uh, case incidents. Uh, but that doesn't account for the availability of early treatment. So that's in the absence of early treatment. If you factor in the early treatment protocols that are typically 95 to 98% uh, protective, then you knock that number down quite a bit. It, it appears that it may be up to 90% or more of the fatalities attributed to COVID um, uh, were avoidable. Uh, you can think of those as policy uh, mortality through the uh, blocking of early treatment protocols, for example. And the policies that were actively promoted that if you go to the emergency room uh, with COVID and, and respiratory distress, um, you're basically told to leave, um, maybe take some aspirin and come back when your lips are blue. In other words, when the disease has progressed significantly, um, which, you know, at that point, you're at much higher risk of uh, significant morbidity and mortality. When you factor all these things in, um, uh, it, it, uh, becomes very tenuous to justify the vaccines at all at any age cohort. And then if you risk stratify and provide a risk benefit uh, evaluation in a stratified fashion, so you look at children uh, and you look at uh, adults and look at elderly as separate categories, for example. Unfortunately, what you find is the risks of the vaccine um, uh, increase basically in the same uh, cohorts where the risk of the virus is uh, increased. So when you do a risk-benefit ratio, even in the elderly, the risks of both vaccine and virus are relatively high. But when you do the risk-benefit ratio, it's very hard to justify even in the elderly administration of these products. So the, the um, Global COVID Summit or International Alliance of Physicians and Scientists, this 17,000 member group uh, that I belong to and have led uh, came out with a statement last spring that it was our opinion that these products should be withdrawn from the market. They were neither safe nor effective. They, as I said on the Lincoln Memorial steps uh, last January, um, these products do not protect against infection, replication, and spread of the virus. They do not provide <clears throat> the fundamental uh, benefits 
that we associated with we associate with vaccination when we think of the term vaccine they don't meet that criteria and that at the time was fairly controversial i was careful to caveat it that i was speaking about the omicron variant and the current data but now that's uh pretty much become accepted wisdom globally is the products don't protect against infection replication and spread and the only kind of battleground in discussions about these products and their effectiveness is in whether or not they protect against hospitalization and death the recent paper out from uh Cleveland Clinic i believe it was in Ohio uh demonstrates that there is an a dose dependent increase in risk of hospitalization and death with these uh particularly mrna products uh so um we we seem to now be in a situation where the data from all over the world are indicating that there may be a short-term benefit in boosting um by raising a general uh titer of antibody much of that antibody being relatively non-specific or non-neutralizing relatively non-potent but enough antibody that is uh of various types that isn't particularly effective but at high levels it can still provide effectiveness um if you track over time um what you see in data from all over the world is that there is a short-term efficacy bump in protection against disease and death but that it has a slope that intersects uh um zero efficacy at about 2 months after administration which is why you hear this advocacy for reboosting at 2 to 3 months beyond that 2 month threshold you move into territory that's uh referred to as negative efficacy so the highly inoculated become more likely to become hospitalized or died relative to for instance uh individuals that are uh, the phrase that's used is naturally immune people that have acquired the virus and recovered from it that have a much more broad based lasting durable immunity so uh it it's quite clear i think to an objective analysis that these products are not um providing the benefits as advertised and as a consequence we've had increased questioning um of of the effectiveness of the products and including uh a couple months ago now it seems uh in the European Union parliament the direct questioning of a vice president of Pfizer as to whether or not the products were ever actually tested for their ability to uh prevent infection replication and spread and there was acknowledgement that they were not even tested for that endpoint um so uh, all of the propaganda that these products are effective and could achieve herd immunity is now clear in retrospect to have not been science based let's say or based on data and we've had the statements from uh the likes of Deborah Burks and Rochelle Wolinsky uh in on questioning that um they basically had hoped that these products would work in this way even though they didn't have the data so the truth is that we're in a situation in which in the United States public health officials advocated for these various policies 
such as lockdowns, 14 days to flatten the curve, use of masks, um, and the vaccine products most notably, those were advanced um, based on hope, not on data. And this includes, of course, the vaccine mandates. As far as I'm concerned, this is not acceptable. Then we move into the issue of what are the risks. And uh, it's been known for a very long time that there was uh, inc substantial increased risk in the range for clinical myocarditis in young men in, in the range of one in 2,000 or one in 3,000 in that general ballpark. Um, uh, as time has gone by, it's become more and more clear that the risk of myocarditis and pericarditis is quite clinically significant. And you mentioned uh, my colleague, Peter McCullough, uh, who has um, noted that, in his opinion, the uh, long-term risks of this clinical myocarditis um, appear to be tracking aligned with a classical viral myocarditis, which has a very significant five-year mortality rate. So we don't know what that mortality rate is going to be with these vaccine products and the myocarditis, clinical myocarditis triggered by them, but it's not trivial. Uh, so uh, right now in these rates of one in 2000 to one in 3000 for clinical myocarditis in, in young uh, males, uh, that that's probably an underestimate. That's a short-term uh, effect in it. And uh, we are looking at a, a potential significant risk, a uh, longer term uh, of, of sudden death and, and cardiac failure uh, in, in really through the whole age range in both genders, but most prominently, tragically, in uh, younger male adults, uh, meaning under 30, and children, uh, um, uh, child and adolescent males. Um, we also have uh, these risks that are um, yet undefined and emerging uh, having to do with reproductive health, and this includes potential risks in utero, uh, that uh, many uh, obstetricians are beginning to speak out about. What they appear to observe in their practices is an unusually high rate of spontaneous abortion in cases where the mother has been administered the products in the first or second trimester, which the data that the CDC references in advocating vaccination in, in uh, pregnant women is biased uh, by um, overrepresentation of third trimester uh, women, um, as you probably know, and so that's that's really not uh, an accurate, objective uh, representation of the risk uh, that uh, young mothers face in the critical first and second trimester when most spontaneous abortions occur. We have. Uh, of course, the risk of a variety of risks relating to clotting. Uh, clearly, the spike protein is a toxin, uh, although that was, uh, I was, I was uh, fact-checked rigorously uh, um, about having said that early on. Uh, but now, I, that's another thing that the science has become fairly compelling. If you define a toxin as something which causes toxicity, so the spike protein that's encoded by the uh, uh, 
genetic vaccine products um, is toxic. The modifications that have been placed in there had nothing to do with mitigating the risk of toxicity. They were placed in there to increase the immunogenicity. So that's another false narrative that was promoted by the fact checkers. Uh, so Spike uh, does promote um, clotting. Uh, it appears to do so through multiple mechanisms. There are these macro clots that have very odd uh, cross-linking um, and make them very resistant to normal uh, recycling and degradation. So these are the clots that embalmers are noting that are kind of uh, gray and very rubbery, very unusual. Uh, um, and my colleague Ryan Cole and others in Germany and Europe have done quite a bit of analysis on this. These are not normal uh, large-scale clots. And then there's the microclotting. And that may be the consequence in part of interaction of a spike protein with pericytes, these very small uh, uh, smooth muscle cells that control um, capillary flow um, by constricting capillaries. And as you know, anytime blood flow is stopped, it will clot. Um, so the microcoagulopathy is a, a threat to virtually any uh, part of the body any organ system. Uh, it can be uh, um, central nervous, pituitary, adrenal, um, uh, um, really any tissue. Uh, all tissues have microcapillaries and are subject to this kind of damage. The uh, cardiac sudden death that is getting so much attention, uh, Often it's occurring in high-performance athletes, uh, weightlifters, others, um, uh, often in males, uh, often in periods of, of high-performance stress. Uh, that, that may have to do with uh, conductivity flaws, uh, um, uh, irregularities in the heart, um, uh, sinoatrial node, and, and other conductive tissues in the heart. Um, and that may be a more of an acute or shorter term uh, toxicity event uh, in, in which there is some interaction of either spike or these lipid nanoparticles uh, with key cardiac tissues that are involved in electrical conductivity. And as you know, if those are disrupted in, in a significant way, uh, it's a setup for ventricular fibrillation. Uh, so we, we seem to have uh, for the these sudden death events, two general categories of toxicity. One is a cardiotoxicity that leads to um, cardiac arrhythmias. And the other is uh, strokes uh, that um, can be both hemorrhagic and non-hemorrhagic, uh, in other words, clot-based. Uh, so a, a, a wide variety of, of kind of uh, acute and subacute toxicities. Uh, we should note that, that the, we were misled by the pharmaceutical industry and by our governments. The RNA persists uh, for at least 60 days after administration in humans. That's documented uh, in a cell paper out of Stanford from last February. And uh, the levels of spike protein that are produced by the vaccine products are actually higher as measured in the plasma than the levels of spike that are observed during the natural infection process. So 
the paradox of why would we see these toxicities with spike more prominently with the vaccines than with the natural infection. It can be readily accounted for just by standard uh, pharmacokinetics and concentrations. We have much more spike protein and it with the jabs in it and it is uh, it becomes present in the body with a very rapid onset uh, as opposed to the natural infection that is uh, kind of got a longer time course. So then there's there's these issues about uh, immune suppression and that's uh, another complex territory. Uh, we knew early on that one of the adverse events that was quite high was uh, shingles and reactivation of other latent DNA viruses. Um, Epstein-Barr was notable and probably responsible for a lot of the post-vaccination syndrome. But uh, that's those observations suggest a T-cell defect um, in immune response. And uh, the big risk, in addition to viral reactivation with T-cell defects, is cancer. And we're seeing uh, the initial reports came out from uh, Ryan Cole was one of the leaders as a very highly qualified pathologist in observing these very aggressive cancers with high mitotic indices uh, um, uh, that that were occurring um, in unusual age cohorts, etc. But now there's a more and more confirmation coming from pathologists and oncologists all over the world that they're seeing these uh, unusual uh, cancers, unusually aggressive. And I want to emphasize that of all of these adverse events, um, I am in no way saying that we are all going to die, those that have accepted the product. Um, they are still a subset. But as you note in in opening this question to me, Gary, the, the issue here is risk-benefit. And the burden on vaccines has always been that they must be exceptionally safe. Unlike an oncology product, if you have a cancer and you're likely to die of that cancer within the next two years, taking a product that is toxic, significantly toxic, causes your hair to fall out, causes bone marrow problems, whatever the thing is, but it still buys you an extra six months in your, on average in the time course of your clinical cancer progression that's considered acceptable because you already have the disease, you already have the risk. In the case of vaccines, prophylactic vaccines, you're treating somebody that does not yet have the disease and the products must be exceptionally safe. This has always been the policy. Um, it, is the, it is a foundational policy in vaccinology, in clinical vaccinology. The products have to be exceptionally safe. And unfortunately, the data now are showing um, more and more uh, rigorously that um, in some, these adverse events, many of which are associated with death um, or hospitalization, but particularly death as an endpoint, um, are, are manifesting, are coming to fore. The products are not safe. Um, and uh, yet the data to allow objective analysis and to support informed consent about either taking the product yourself or authorizing your child to take it are being suppressed, as you mentioned. Uh, and uh, it, you know, many 
I, I hate hyperbole. I, uh, there are many that traffic in that. Um, it's a good business model from CNN all the way down to the smallest podcaster. But um, I think a case can be made. This is the largest public health disaster in the history of the modern world. Thank you. I appreciate the overview. What we're trying to do is provide people with positive information if they've been vaccinated or not, if they've had side effects or not, if they've been naturally infected with no vaccines but have natural immunity but also have long COVID. So it just doesn't seem to end. We've seen people who've suffered dementia-like symptoms with long COVID and including medical doctors who've then done tests to see how much of their their mental faculties have been disrupted because of this long COVID. We've seen people who've had dormant viruses, as you mentioned, herpes 6, cytomegalovirus, Epstein virus, suddenly manifest again. We've seen people who've been in remission through successful cancer treatments now come out of remission, and the cancer seems to be, according to the oncologist treating the patients, more vigorous. In other words, it's a it has a different energy than the original cancer did and is, is not working the same with the standard treatments that put them into remission. But you mentioned something in the very beginning of your talk, and that is that had we begun a systematic review of FDA-approved off-label drugs that could help a person with specific conditions in the body, whether those conditions affected the kidney or liver, heart, or lungs, brain, etc. Or, or coagulation. Yeah, we have quite a large armamentarian that is there, and even the World Health Organization has deemed these are the safest of the drugs available. And yet, and here are the questions that people have. Uh, because on the one hand, uh, one of the physicians that you mentioned, Dr. McCullough, stated uh, to me personally in an interview that he believed that the adverse effects of the vaccines are about, more honestly, about 15%. Take into account how, how our existing VERA system, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, is voluntary, and how we've interviewed over 100 nurses and many doctors working in emergency rooms who say, A, they don't have the time to do this in a busy schedule, or B, they have been told not to do it. They've been disinclined from filling out these adverse event reports. Also in the literature sent out by the manufacturers of the vaccine, it stated what side effects you should look for and therefore which ones you should check off. And this is only a handful. And so if a person is manifesting symptoms uh, that we have not been told to look forward to, like Guillain-Barre syndrome, but that's what a patient has, then there's no checking that off. Even if a person is sick and hospitalized, they're not shown as being affected in an adverse manner. But then the people say, okay, well, it still leaves 85% of the people who are okay, so therefore, why not look at the greater good, 85% of the public? And my question to you is on two levels. The first is, we will be presenting in this program later on uh, a series of experts, medical doctors, I'm sure almost all of them whom you know, who are suggesting that their medications or supplements like vitamin C and quercetin and zinc and, and uh, others that can interfere in the 
pathological processes in the and the pathogenesis of the disease, and that could save lives. But this could have been done at the beginning. There are others who say there are medicines that we could use in combination, whether it's uh, uh, cisomycin with, uh, let's say, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and, and monoclonal antibodies, steroids, whatever it may be. These are legitimate and have a long history of helping people through crisis and saving lives. That is not in dispute. The scientific peer-review literature shows that. So my question would be, for the 85%, how do you know you're safe because you have not yet had a side effect when, by your statement, some of these heart conditions, myocarditis, may take up to five years, depending on a person's physiology, their age, their state of their immune system, etc., and how many vaccines they had before you've manifested. And one of the reasons the FDA has insisted historically on anywhere from seven being the shortest period to 10 being the normal years of testing prior to implementing it into the marketplace is because of the precautionary principle. First, prove you're doing no harm and you're gaining efficacy in the process. And historically, with most vaccines, that has been the case. But here, we didn't have seven to 10 years. It was under a year. And none of the or none of the mainstream medicines were even suggested. To the contrary, people were told, doctors were told, even their state medical boards told them you could lose your license if you use ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. And yet I did a, uh, a paper showing at the time they were being attacked. I did a paper along with Richard Gale showing that there were over 400 studies in the peer review literature of different varieties, different um, different physicians and scientists at all respected institutions. But we're talking about anywhere from 75 to 95% efficacy in preventing early onset diagnosis and treatment as being successful. And in some cases, especially with death, even those who were in a hospital who got late treatment still had a statistically significant prevention of death where otherwise it would have been certain. And so the, my next question is, why hasn't the government and all of its agencies and the media supporting the government and the major um, journalists and the major policymakers insisted, let's save the patient from day one in whatever we can until the vaccine is there or until some very important medicine and they wanted to say that remdesivir was the important medicine. But when I looked at the actual studies on remdesivir, what was given to almost all these people in the hospital when they're, as you said, their lips turned blue, there was high mortality. Yeah, it's I would renal never, toxic. I would never suggest that. And when your renals are toxic, guess what builds up fluid in, in the lungs? You know, and then you have a double negative. Could you address these issues, please? Yeah, the remdesivir um, situation is particularly egregious. Um, it was clearly pushed by Tony Fauci. Um, you ask why, uh, and I think the, the emerging uh, consensus is uh, a combination of money, uh, massive global expenditures simultaneously to uh, financially influence uh, um uh, not just physicians and medical care providers and licensing boards and 
of medical societies, uh, but in in the media, uh, um, but anyone in a position to influence public opinion. Uh, so this is the massive global expenditure uh, to uh, financially uh, entice any influencer or artist to uh, um, uh, endorse these products uh, unequivocally without without any uh, consideration. We also had, um, this is covered in our book, the uh, Yale University um, performed a 600-person randomized blinded clinical trial uh, with a six-month follow-up testing uh, messaging uh, to uh, elicit uh, vaccine acceptance and uh, peer pressure on third parties to accept vaccines. This is the study that gave rise to the messaging about, uh, you know, don't kill a grandma, basically, you know, that you have a moral obligation to those surrounding you to accept the product because otherwise you'll be responsible for their deaths. Um, uh, this was what gave rise to the logic that we have to vaccinate all the children to protect their grandparents that for instance was promoted on CNN using uh, Sesame Street characters uh, together with a physician Sanjay Gupta um, this is this is direct marketing of uh, an unlicensed medical product and the messaging behind that was uh, tested in a randomized clinical trial before we ever had a vaccine um, the world and the medical care providers have been subjected to uh, what's truly military-grade psychological operations propaganda campaign using technology and, and techniques that were designed uh, for offshore combat, uh, information combat with foreign adversaries. And it was deployed against uh, the citizenry of the United States and all the Western nations. In addition, physicians um, were uh, subjected to a lot of fear uh, messaging having to do with what transpired, particularly in New York, early on in the outbreak, as well as what we now know as propaganda coming out of the CCP of the individuals dying on the streets, etc. Physicians and medical care providers were mandated in the first wave to accept the product, first responders included. Uh, and um, so they all had buy-in. They, they accepted the product. They didn't resist. We were all surrounded by fear. And now having done so, there's a great reluctance to go back and say, I made a bad decision there. Um, uh, and so you have a kind of an incentive uh, to carry on with the messaging that's been so aggressively promoted and financed. In addition, what I've observed is that particularly physicians working at uh, tertiary care centers, you know, these, these high-end medical centers, often in urban areas, um, where there has been significant mortality, often associated with dosing with remdesivir and overuse of ventilation, um, uh, which has been clearly shown to cause uh, excess mortality. These physicians carry uh, the burden of having experienced this, uh, experienced these deaths in a very big way. And to my uh, 
eyes, many of them have post-traumatic stress disorder from uh, what they experienced, particularly in the first Wuhan wave. So there's, there's this overlapping um, uh, cascade of influences or undue influences that is compromised objectivity. Uh, and um, this messaging effort that uh, physicians and, and others in the medical care space should only uh, comply with the and perform uh, their uh, practices using uh, the protocols advanced by the federal government. This is a perversion, as you note, of classic uh, medical care. And it is, it is a kind of a, a leading indicator of the consequence of uh, the um, uh, dominance of uh, these very large hospital-based practice um, uh, that have essentially gobbled up all independent physicians virtually. Um, most, almost all medical care in the United States is now provided by these uh, hospital-based networks that have a variety of incentives to operate um, based on checklist and uh, to not uh, follow the more traditional physician-patient uh, approach that's very patient-centric, where the physician approaches the patient as a individual um, seeking to understand their chief complaint and their presentation, deriving a diagnosis, and then treating based on the symptoms in that diagnosis. There's, it seems like the only physicians that really engaged in that a more traditional medical care practice that many of whom gave rise to these early treatment protocols were older physicians that were um, financially independent, uh, had a long history, had been trained in an earlier time that was not so protocol dependent, um, and uh, were often out in a primary practice. Um, some of these are people that specialize in integrative medicine, um, areas that were once considered fringe uh, in, in edgy, uh, non-traditional, outside of the mainstream of medicine, these were the ones that, uh, for whatever reason, uh, were at the forefront of pioneering exactly the approach that you're um, mentioning. Now, on top of that, we have growing body of evidence that um, we had basically uh, bureaucrats uh, within, um, as as uh, many of uh, now use the term administrative state, these entrenched uh, bureaucrats that are all through health and human services um, have uh, promoted uh, a single uh, solution, a treatment protocol and very aggressively uh, acted to uh, inhibit any alternatives. Uh, and the, the most, the one you mentioned, hydroxychloroquine, the documentation of the collusion between Janet Woodcock at the FDA and Rick Bright at BARDA to uh, suppress the availability of hydroxychloroquine in the face of uh, the direct uh, um, directions from the sitting president of the United States, whatever you think of Mr. Trump, uh, 
uh, there was a clear, well-documented effort to circumvent the presidential will about making hydroxychloroquine available. And uh, um, uh, at a time when uh, um, very large quantities of hydroxychloroquine had been obtained by Peter Navarro uh, for distribution throughout the United States, and much of that hydroxychloroquine ended up being destroyed. Uh, but, but absolutely, the documentation is quite clear that we had Janet Woodcock and uh, Rick Bright colluding uh, to um, make it so that physicians would not administer hydroxychloroquine, would not have it available. In my own experience, uh, because I, I had, uh, part of my story here is that I had, I was working uh, on a contract to identify drugs as countermeasures uh, for um, organophosphate uh, agents. So this is nerve uh, toxins, et cetera. Um, uh, that are used, uh, weaponized. Uh, I was working under a military contract with a group using the latest technology to identify countermeasures for this. And I got this call from Wuhan, uh, from, uh, Michael Callahan telling me that I needed to get my group spun up for a different purpose. That being, um, uh, developing countermeasures for this novel coronavirus. Uh, we, we pivoted to vo on a voluntary basis. Um, uh, using uh, um, molecular docking and high throughput screening and other technologies to identify repurposed drugs. And eventually that led to the uh, protocol of hydro, of, I'm sorry, uh, famotidine, celecoxib, and ivermectin being particularly potent. Um, I did not promote this in the way that. Uh, um, physicians such as Pierre Corey or Peter McCullough promoted their uh, cocktails, but this is the one that came out of the DOD effort. And, uh, and we ran into incredible resistance. This is the Department of Defense in advancing uh, adequately funded, uh, adequately powered randomized clinical trials for both outpatient and inpatient population with the FDA. None of us in the team had ever experienced that level of uh, resistance from the FDA, just endless revision after revision after revision. And the FDA would not allow us to um, advance any uh, protocol that included ivermectin uh, unless we uh, demonstrated uh, the mechanism of action of ivermectin in a cell culture or other uh, ex vivo model, um, which is you know patently absurd and a criteria that's never been applied for other uh, repurposed drugs. Clearly, there was a centralized um, campaign to uh, block the availability of repurposed drugs and protocols and drug combinations uh, within HHS, which does not have the right to control the practice of medicine according to the U.S. Constitution. That right, right vests with the states. But this was uh, implemented through, as you mentioned, a number of different pathways of coercion um, and uh, gaslighting and suppression, including through state medical boards. Um, uh, and, and of course, Peter McCullough again becomes a poster child for the power that was deployed, but so does Ryan Cole. Ryan Cole just recently sold a what had been an extremely successful private pathology practice because 
um, that insurance companies will no longer uh, compensate for his services through his old company. Um, and he had lost his license uh, in multiple states to practice pathology. He's extremely well-trained, Mayo. Some of the top pathologists in the world have trained him. Um, he's turned out to be right about everything that he's talked about. Uh, but he just has to sell, had to sell his company because um, he could not practice pathology uh, because of, of all these measures taken against people. It, what has transpired here is, uh, it's criminal. I don't know how else to say it. Um, and uh, a case can be made that, as you, as you mentioned, uh, up for those that are valid COVID deaths, it could be 90% or more of those deaths were avoidable uh, had uh, the government, the federal government, stayed within its mandate and stayed out of the practice of medicine, which it has no right to regulate. Um, these practices, as a, as a um, uh, specialist in outbreaks and infectious disease and medical countermeasures, I've been involved in multiple prior um, outbreak responses, uh, notably in repurposing drugs for Zika, which included hydroxychloroquine, by the way, um, and in uh, spearheading the advancement of the vaccine developed in Canada that got sold to Merck um, through my intervention. And we now call the Ebola vaccine, the Merck Ebola vaccine. Um, I have this deep experience. I've lectured at the World Health Organization on influenza vaccines and new influenza vaccine technology. I know this space. I and my peers have never seen anything like the way the federal government and uh, these centralized world bodies like the World Health Organization has implemented uh, this highly aggressive centralized control on, on both the United States and the world in response to an outbreak like this, which the data now are showing uh, the virus was nowhere near as uh, pathogenic, as lethal, um, as, as any of the modeling had suggested upon which these policies were based. It is, it is um, as I said in the last segment, um, this is the greatest uh, public health tragedy, um, this mismanagement that I think any of us have ever seen. So now, three years later, you, McCullough, Cole, uh, Corey, and thousands of others were on the right side of the truth, science, medicine, and history. However, on the other side, the same people propagating the misinformation still are in power, and now they're forming hundreds of groups to filter out disinformation. And of course, anything you're saying and others are saying, even patients' testimony that you don't see in the New York Times of what happened after they got vaccinated, those are all filtered out. And now only the pro-Fauci, Bill Gates, Gavi, World Health Organization, Fauci information gets through. And so we have to look at the lack of objectivity of all the major media and governmental agencies. And I'm guesstimating there's around 500 more or less physicians and scientists who are at the front line of sharing information, helping their patients, 
uh, showing what is the truth. And that's out of probably 6 million scientists, and at least in the United States, more or less 900,000 physicians who've chosen not to speak out for whatever their motive is for not coming forward and joining these ranks. And uh, so I commend you. I commend all the signers of the Great Burlington Declaration, which is now, I think, up to 800,000 plus. I commend the patients who are fighting back because they've been injured. And I just want those who have yet to vaccinate. I don't tell you to vaccinate or not. That's not my position. I will support you either way. And But at least do your homework. Because it is clear now, from what has been exposed through Twitter, that the entire medical industrial complex doesn't want to be challenged and will not. And they have the power to censor and to attack individuals personally. So if you take the best and brightest, like yourself, and the New York Times pillars you on the front page as a dangerous person, and yet your entire career has been exemplary, uh, then you know that something else is afoot and that they should have done honest and objective reporting. Thank you very much for being with us today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Gary. It has been profound. It's all coming to a head. And I never thought I'd see this in my career, but now we're seeing it. And I have hope at this moment going forward. Thank you very much for being with us. I appreciate it. Thanks, Gary. Be good. <laughs>